right, good morning again. Uh, before I begin my teaching, we'd like to give the mic to Mary Ann, who is the personal assistant to the pastor, P-A-T-P, -P. beautiful acronym. She has a few things she wants to share with you. Good morning. Also the social media liaison, and that's the ball cap I'm wearing this morning. Um, I'd like to announce that we have revamped our website. Um, there should be a picture. <laughs> For the website, um, we have over 1,200 followers that come and look at the page. So it's very important that all the information is up to date. You can find what to expect. You can find our team and just all kinds of great general information. So send anybody to our website so they know what to expect. Uh, next, we have a church Instagram. It's h2o underscore church. So please, please, please follow us on Instagram. Um, you can find our baptism videos, our Sunday service recaps, and really cool event photos. So we'll be taking some from the church picnic. I know. <laughs> and posting them up there. Also, with... Oh, Facebook. Uh, like our Facebook page, and please tag yourself in it because it's such a great tool. It's basically a free advertisement. It's like our yellow pages. Most people will come to our Facebook page, and they'll try and figure out whether or not they want to come to our church, and we definitely want them to. So please do that. Also, we have a church email that goes out every Thursday. So if you don't have um, the church email coming into your inbox, check your junk mail, because <laughs> sometimes MailChimp sends it to the junk mail. But if not, you can sign up for the church email on the website, and there's like a little link on Facebook. So I encourage you to do that. And all the announcements go there as well. That's it. <laughs> Before we let Marianne uh, leave the stage, I want to say something about next Sunday. Next Sunday, we are having a party with the pastors right after the Sunday service. You're invited over to my house. We have a pool. We have a grill. We're going to be doing the same thing that we did uh, whenever we did that a couple months ago. Uh, we will be supplying burgers and hot dogs. And so what a great way for us to just be a community. Later that evening, we're going to be doing God on Tap. God on Tap is part of our very intentional way of reaching out to people that haven't heard about Jesus or haven't connected all the dots yet. People that are seekers, people that are atheists, people that are just de-churched, trying to find their way. God on Tap is a meeting in a bar, a casual conversation to allow us to ask difficult questions. We have changed our philosophy, or at least for this next God on Tap next Sunday. We're inviting every single one of you to come to this event and just be an observer because we're convinced if you come, you're going to want to bring your friends. So Marianne is now going to explain to you what we need to do in order to pull off that event well. So we've tried it a couple different ways, but the best way that we found is I've created an event on Facebook for God on Tap, and it's basically an RSVP. That way we know how many people are going to come, how many people to expect, and what type of table situation we need to do. So please, 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 I encourage you to get on our Facebook and go onto the event page and tell us whether or not you're going to be. It's like a little RSVP.
Now you can give a round of applause to Marianne. Thank you. Hey, we're beginning a new series this morning called Knowing God. And so, are you ready to hear God speak to you? So let's pray. Great and holy God, we acknowledge that you have revealed yourself in wonderful ways. We look out at the stars, we look at the ocean, we look at mountains. Well, maybe we don't look at mountains. <laughs> we look at this wonderful creation and we realize that your fingerprints are everywhere. We thank you that you've revealed yourself specifically through the scriptures. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in a special, special way through Jesus as recorded in the scriptures. And we trust that you're a God that speaks and you want to speak to us today. So we take our anxieties, we take all the things that are in our mind right now, and we push them aside and we ask you to speak to each of us personally. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you about a song that began to affect my life in a very powerful way about three months ago. It's a song that was written in 1982. A song that was written by uh, an artist that very few of you have heard of, a guy named Bob Bennett. Now I know what some of you are thinking, like 1982, how many of you did not exist at that point? Raise your hand. Woo, a lot of you. I know the questions that are running through your mind. Yes. We did have indoor plumbing. We did have electricity. No, we did not have iPhones back in 1982. Uh, this is way before you were twinkle in your parents' eyes. This is long, long ago. It's a song by Bob Bennett called The Heart of the, Heart of the Matter, and I want to give you just a taste of this song at this point. I'm just a man in a world full of men just like me. Okay, we just got to stop here for a minute. And um, let me just say, this is what I m listen to now. So you may have noticed my tastes have changed a little bit over time, right? So, 1982. I'm just a man in a world. And now. Good enough. What did you say? That's a song called Dum Dum by Tadashi. And it is excellent and great. So I want everyone to go listen to it. But the very old-fashioned song that I listened to from 1982 had a wonderful lyric that captured my heart about three months ago. And the lyric is this. And I find myself, I find myself longing to return back to the place where I started. Back when I knew next to nothing. Back to the heart back to the heart of the matter. I met Jesus in 1980 on a mountain in Colorado at a place called Frontier Ranch. And as I heard about Jesus and what he had done for me on the cross, I found a longing inside of me. I want to know God. I was not interested in religion. I was not interested in rituals and rules. I wanted to know God. In the next two years of my life, I got very busy. Got very busy doing things for God, in fact. 
1982, two years later, I got to return back to that same camp. As part of our camp experience in 1982, we got to walk up a mountain, and right near the top of the mountain, they had us turn around so that we couldn't see the site that we were about to see. And then we, after walking up the final 50 yards with our backs turned, they said, now turn around. And there was a mountain like right in front of us. We were on a mountain and there was a mountain that felt like you could just reach out and touch it. It was an overwhelming sight. It was beautiful. It was majestic. It was breathtaking. As we began our descent down off the mountain, there was a homely, unimpressive cross that had the words to Psalm 46, verse 10, written on it. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still, be still, relax, and know that I am God. And for me, this reawakened a longing in me to return back to where I started, where my Christianity was just focused on God and who he was that I could be overwhelmed by his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his goodness, everything that makes God, God. If you're a Christian here this morning, I think that longing is inside of you. I think that's what you want more than any other thing is to know the God that loves you, that saved you, to hear his voice, to experience his presence, to be overwhelmed with what we call God. But if you're de-churched, I think you have that same longing. Because if you're de-churched, at one time you were churched. At one time, you were attending church, and I'm pretty convinced you didn't leave church because they gave you too much God. Right? I'm pretty sure that in your heart was not like, that's plenty of God. What I really long for is more man-made religion. Give me rules. That's not what happened. Each of us has a longing this morning just for God. So this morning and in the series, we are going to go week after week and look at the attributes of God and just describe the borders, the depths, all the details of what we call God. This morning, we're going to look at God's holiness and grace. And so we have a little video by the Bible Project people, of course, to get us started here this morning. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, 
his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. 
And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity and bringing everything back to life. Let me just say, that was one shaggy-haired Jesus, wasn't it? What was up with that? He looked like he had this terrible, bad hair day. Well, I hope that uh, helps you to understand holiness. Here's what I want to do here today. I want to look at three episodes, three calls. God's call of Moses, God's call of Isaiah, and God's, Jesus' call of Peter. So let's begin with the call of Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. This may not be completely obvious to you, but Moses at this point in his life was very similar to a person who is de-churched. Moses, at this point, the background to the story is that there is evil and violence in the world, and it bothers him. The people of Israel are enslaved to Pharaoh, and Moses is like, God, how can you allow evil and suffering in the world? Moses tries to do something about it, and all he accomplishes is murder. So Moses had to, has to run for his life from this evil, baby-killing man, Pharaoh. And he goes away to Midian, and he settles down. He gets married, and he has a child, and he disassociates from the pain and the evil and the suffering of the world. The reason I know this is that the one ritual that the people of Israel were to have is they were to circumcise their male children and Moses feels like God has called him, and Moses does not circumcise his son. He refuses to do the one thing that would say, I'm over here with God. At this point in his life, he's alienated from God. He's wondering, God, why don't you show up? That's what's going on in Moses' life. He names his son Gershom which means stranger. You, you know, remember back in uh, elementary school when you're really awkward and afraid and they go around the room and you say your names and there's always one kid that has this crazy, ridiculous name and you think, what was wrong with your parents? Can you imagine going around the room and then Gershom stands up and he says, my name's Stranger. I mean, that's just weird. Why did Moses do that? Because Moses did not feel connected to God and God's story. Listen, let me fast forward to the New Testament. We live in a great story of a great deliverance by a great God, but Moses at this point in his story feels disconnected 
from this great God. And God meets them. God reveals himself in a burning bush. Verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So God reveals himself as like this consuming fire, this thing that would make Moses afraid. God's holiness is being expressed in this burning bush. And yet you might not know this, but this expression, Moses, Moses, this repetition is something that was practiced in the Middle East. It's a term of endearment. It's like saying, Matt, Matt, Taylor, Taylor. It's not a voice of frustration like, why haven't you believed in me? Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses is checked out. He feels dis, disenchanted with God. He's alienated from God. And I want you to notice this. God reveals himself in his holiness, and then he moves toward Moses with endearment. Listen, if you're a Christian, maybe you have not had a burning bush experience. Anyone had that? None of us have. But if you've become a Christian, you have been called. Maybe you were just talking with a friend. Maybe you were talking with a pastor. But when the Jesus message made sense to you, that was God calling out to you. Haywood, Haywood, since you're sitting right here. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Again, a practice in the Middle East was to take off your sandals as a way of demonstrating reverence. So I want to explain holiness here in this section just that we understand it because there's several different nuances to it. The first one is, uh, was demonstrated in that video. It represents God's moral purity, God's excellence. So I want us all to hear this. Holiness is not a thing that is only meant to scare us. Holiness is an awesome thing. It means God cannot sin. God cannot lie to you. God can never deceive you. He can never take advantage of you. He can never have anything but the best intentions for you. Why? Because God is holy. That's the first nuance. The second means that God is other. God is not like you and me. When we say God is holy, we're saying God is unique. Any attempt in the Bible to say, well, God is kind of like this, both gives us information, and yet it's like, well, he's not really. Like, follow me here. The Lord is my shepherd. That means that we're dumb sheep. We don't know where we're going. We need someone to guide us. The Lord is the one that guides us. We have information from that, right? But shepherds usually don't make you fall down and tremble. Like I've known shepherds. When I've been to Africa, I've met shepherds. They don't cause fear in my heart. And so he is both like and unlike any illustration. I'm a dad. I know what it means to be a dad. I get it when the scripture says that God is our father. But he is so unlike me. He is so attentive, so affectionate. He is both like and unlike being a father. He is holy. 
He is other. He is unique. But there's a third nuance about holiness too. Look at it this way. Holiness is infectious. Anything that God touches becomes holy itself. It means it's set apart. It's consecrated for this new purpose. Like right here, the dirt. Holy dirt. What's going on? Take off your sandals because the ground is holy? This is really cool to me. If you're a Christian, you've been on holy ground. You've come to the foot of the cross. You've realized who Jesus are, and in that process of coming to believe, you became holy. You became set apart, consecrated. You have a new special purpose in your life. We will never live up to God's standards of moral purity. We will never. But God has made us holy just because we've come to know him. I love how in this episode, God's holiness makes Moses afraid. And yet, when God speaks to him, his affection, his endearment, his grace helps Moses to feel accepted. So I want us to see this, and we're going to build on this. God is dangerous. Do we all see this in this text? Do we all see that God is a dangerous God? He is a holy God. We must not dummy down who he is. He is holy. But he is also gracious, a God that invites us into relationship. Verse 6. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What do you guys know about Abraham and Isaac? Isaac and Jacob? What about Abraham? What do we know? How, in what way did he fail? Yes, twice Mo Abraham denied that he knew his wife. He put her in a horrible situation because he was a coward. What we know about Isaac was that he was the kind of dad that totally loved one son and did not love another son. You want to screw up somebody's life? Do that. And when we come to Jacob, he is such a miserable, conniving, scheming individual. Like you don't want to know a Jacob. So when God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it is meant to give us hope. God chooses these total screw-ups. And he says, they're involved in this great story because of who I am not because of who they are. As the story goes on, God reveals himself to Moses, and the name by which God reveals himself in the Hebrew is Yahweh, which means I am, which means the most important fact of every moment of our human existence is that there is a God. No matter how tempted we are by sin, no matter how fearful and cowardly we may feel because of our emotions, no matter how much we have failed in the past and screw up, screwed up our lives, Yahweh, I am, I am here, present in order to save. And I love what happens in this story. I wish we could just talk about Moses for a long time, but we did a whole series on this months ago, and so we're not going to go there. God calls Moses to do something that is incredible. 
he has this huge challenge for Moses. And I want you to just look at all the excuses Moses tries to throw at him. Who am I? He first asks. I'm insignificant. What shall I tell them? He asks. What if they do not believe me? I have never been eloquent. And then my personal favorite, please send somebody else. I mean, just, I got no other cards to play here. Just, just I don't want to do it. Here's what I see in this story about God's holiness and grace. You can be in a great story of a great deliverance by a great God and feel disenchanted and disoriented. As you look at the world and you look at, at, at its brokenness and as you look at your own failures and your own struggles, you can lose the big picture. And God moves in on Moses with holiness and grace. Here's the second episode. The second episode is the call of Isaiah. Isaiah was about 700 years before Jesus came around. Isaiah penned some of the most beautiful prophetic words. Isaiah 53, if you read through that chapter and you realize that carbon dating has been performed on the scroll of Isaiah, we know that this was written before Jesus came along, and yet Isaiah depicted the crucifixion in Isaiah 53 in a way that is just astounding. Isaiah is a rock star prophet. He is the man. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, those crazy beasts we had described to us. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. No, it says, holy, 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 pure, other, different, beyond your mind's comprehension is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want us to think about our culture's view of God for a few moments. I want you to think about the popular renditions of the way God is, as described by our society. First, we have the deist God, the God that is just up there, who just watches. He's not involved in human life. He doesn't interact with us. He doesn't control circumstances. He's just up there. That God does not exist. That is a figment of human imagination. That is not the God that is revealed in Scripture. The second God, door number two, is the cosmic genie God. The God that is all about you. He just wants to make your life successful and, and to make you comfortable and to grant you three wishes. That God does not exist. The third God is probably the biggest God in America here. It's the non-judgy God. The God who says, I will not hold anyone responsible for anything that they do. I'm really loving hugs is what I am. That God does not exist. Fourthly, the angry, you will never please me. You cannot make me happy, God. That God does not exist either. What we have seen 
already in the first episode and now halfway through the second is that God is holy and yet God is gracious. Here in a little bit, we're going to sing a song called Pieces. And I love this lyric. It says, you don't give your heart in pieces. God is not the sort of God that just gives himself a little bit to us. He is a God that gives himself completely to relationship with us. But we already sang a song about God sitting on a throne, being high and lifted up. He's both holy and he is a God who is gracious. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, this is interesting, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, just first of all, this is not, he's not being literal here that my lips are unclean. It's not like I just ate salsa, there's something on my lips. That's not what is going on here. It's not like he didn't brush his teeth. What is he talking about? What does this mean? And, and the truth is, we, we don't know for certain. Is it referencing swearing? Is he saying, hey, I'm a preacher, but I still swear, and everyone I know swears? Does he say things that are inappropriate? Do words come out of his mouth that are boastful? The text doesn't say us, doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is this. Before Isaiah is in the presence of God, Isaiah feels pretty good about himself. I mean, he's a preacher. That's what he does. And as soon as he comes into God's presence, he says, I'm lost. That word there literally means I'm undone. I'm disintegrating. I'm being pulled apart because I'm in the presence of God. Just so you know, that's part of the process. If you're not a Christian yet, God must undo you. God must make you so aware of who he is that you realize there's nothing I can do to ever please you. I'm sinful. I'm dirty. I'm broken. I am undone. Before we go on, I just want to say that in our day, it's very popular to contrast the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. To say that, I really like the New Testament God. You know the God in the Old Testament? He's all this fury and smoke. But Jesus, with a little lamb around his neck, I love that God, that soft, nice God. And that's not the teaching of Scripture. God is unchanging. Jesus is the exact replication of the Old Testament God. So we can look at Jesus and we can look at God and we can know God is fire and smoke and grace and tenderness. Check out what happens, verse 7, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs with the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, for your sin is atoned for. You know, my first reflection on this verse is, this sounds terrible. I mean, the live coal, you ever burned your tongue? And then it's all fuzzy as you try to eat? This just sounds terrible. But it's not. 
It's cleansing. The big picture is Isaiah is hanging out with his buddies. He feels pretty good about himself. He comes into God's presence, and he begins to realize, I am blank. I kind of laugh at this whole thing of I'm a man of unclean lips because when I became a Christian, I was a man of unclean, like there were a bunch of blanks after that. And for most of us, that's our reality. There's a bunch of blanks. He's undone. But now I want you to see what happens in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will I go for? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. You, you have this rock star preacher dude feel completely undone, disintegrating because he's aware of how broken and sinful he is. And then, by experiencing God's forgiveness, he seems completely whole again. He seems more himself than he's ever been. He doesn't need to impress anybody. It's like, I'm here. I'm not much, but I'm here. Use me. Send me. We see him undone and then redone by God's holiness and grace. Episode 3, the call of Peter. Luke 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. So here's the background here. Peter has had a relationship with Jesus for at least six months at this point. They've become friends. He shows up on Sunday and he listens to Jesus teach. He likes Jesus. He believes in Jesus. And yet there's something in Peter where Peter's not all in. Peter's not all in to Jesus' mission at this point in his life. And so Jesus is preaching and he decides to move over into one of his boats, one of Peter's boats. Look at verse 4 and 5. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now let's just take a time out. We're not going to take any time on this, but like, what are you good at? Like, what are you really excellent at? Like, all of us here are really good at, at, at something. And how do you feel when someone begins to give you advice about that area where you're really pretty great anyway? Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? I get this sometimes with my wife, if, if I can be honest, because we, we're very vulnerable here. I get this sometimes when I'm cooking, because I'm a pretty good cook. And I'm cooking, and my wife will say, well, here's what I would do. And there's a part of me that's like, shut up. I don't care. I got this. Are you kidding me? Like, I know what I'm doing. So just imagine with me here. Peter is a fisherman. This is what he lives for. He gets up every day, and he fishes. And here's some preacher with shaggy hair. Bad hair day Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he says, can I give you some advice about how to do what you've been doing all of your life? Right? That's the context of what is going on here. Verse 5, and Simon asked, answered, 
Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. We caught nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Like he's begrudging. I'll do it. There's something that is going on here. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he said, this is awesome. This is the best catch we've had in a long time. Thank you. Is that what he does? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from, from me, for I am a sinful man. What testament are we in right now, new or old? New. Who are we talking about? Scary God in the Old Testament? Or are we talking about Jesus? All that to say, Jesus is dangerous. Right? If you let Jesus into your life and you surrender and say, I'm following you, that is a very scary thing because he is a dangerous God who is entirely good and can be trusted and loves you and his motives are perfect and his wisdom unparalleled. I might be reading into the text here, but I think Peter had control problems. You know, as I read his story, I just think he, he kind of wants to have control over his life. There's an episode where Jesus takes Peter and John for a walk on the beach. And he tells Peter, here's what's going to happen in your life. And Peter's like, wait a minute. What about, what about that guy? I want his life. Because he wants to control. There is something lurking in every human heart where we don't trust God. Every one of us here today, whether you're a Christian or not, there's something lurking in our hearts where we don't trust him until God impresses us with this holiness. And then we can say, okay, you're God. You're holy, not me. Verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, well, you're right, you really are crap. I mean, I just want you to notice like, how if we are really vulnerable and honest, we would expect, I mean, I'm, I'm sinful. I just realized how dangerous and how holy Jesus is, and certainly he's about to point out everything that I'm not, every way I've failed, every weakness, and that's not what happens at all. He gives him a new purpose, a new calling. He basically says, I have much more in store for you. You have no idea. Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. I have a new vision, a greater purpose for you. So listen, the God we've been told about by our culture and the God that we see in Moses and Isaiah and in Peter's call with Jesus, they're not the same. The God that Scripture gives us, the picture that God wants us to have is that he's holy and yet he's gracious 
which means he's good, which means we can trust and we can follow. I want to say something to those of you that are de-churched, that maybe you've come back to church here recently and we're glad you're here. I just want to say as clearly as I can, a relationship with God, if understood rightly, is beautiful and transformative, but religion can be awfully destructive. And we don't do anyone a service by dumbing down God as if we can improve on who he is. So if you're de-churched and you're finding your way back to God, my hope for you is that this dangerous God would just captivate your heart and you'd begin to sense God's calling on your own life. If you're a Christian, I want to say this. My 38 years of following Jesus have been a tug of war between I know what's best for my life and what I want you to do with me and surrender. God's purposes, whatever they are for you, are good because God is good, because God is holy. For those of you that are new with us here this morning, we want to, again, offer starting point to you a one-on-one -on -one conversation where you get to ask whatever you need to ask in order to connect the dots between what Scripture says and your own life. Does this affect our worship? You bet. We serve a holy God. Does this affect our identity? Yeah. You've been made holy. Does this affect our mission, what we're trying to do as a church? Yeah, here am I. Send me. As I invite the band up to lead us into worship, I want to focus us on a choice that we all have. Tonight, if you walk out of your house and you look up at the stars, you'll be confronted with an image that is really indescribable as the stars just keep going and going. And we have two choices in life. We can live independently from God or we can live in surrender to him and his purposes. And being the connivers that we are, we try to take a middle ground. If you live your life without God, there's only two consequences, two results that'll happen. The first is pride. You'll become the sort of angry atheist that thinks he knows anything about the world as we spout our unbelievable ignorance. That's pride. And what results from that pride, that sense of saying, I'm going to live my life without God, consequently, is despair. There is no meaning if there is no God. I want us to look at the cross of Jesus for a minute. Let's look at that cross and just realize what has been revealed there. We see the holiness of God demonstrated by the cross. God is holy. Our sin must be dealt with. But we also have this delicious invitation of grace.
So for those of us that choose to live our life in the light of a holy God that is gracious, do not take that middle ground. Take the ground of full surrender. And in that act of full surrender, there will be two consequences that we experience there. The first is humility. The first is humility because now we know there is a creator and there is a creature. I'm the creature. He is the creator. That's humility. And when we find ourselves in that space of being humble before a God that is holy and gracious, we have hope. We have something bubble inside of us like, I know what life is all about. Can you stand with us as we move into worship? Great and holy God, we are so thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself. We are not left alone to our imaginations to try to figure you out. We are not left up to our feelings as if they indicate who you are. We are not left to blindly follow what culture says as they don't follow you and they preach to us about who you are. So instead today, God, we are invited to a cross that speaks volumes and to scripture that cries out, I am holy and gracious. God, as we move into worship right now, we pray you'd move on us. We pray that you would thrill our hearts as we connect the dots between who you say you are and our lives here today. Would you receive our worship and be pleased with it? Would you move upon us in an act of holiness and grace? We give you thanks through the great name of Jesus. Amen.